Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast, your initiation into the ways of the square to resurrect the wretch and pee on the all-seeing pyramid of Illuminati enlightenment. And now, here's your host, Mr. Michael Joseph. Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast. Welcome to episode number 36. And here's where we start kicking off a sort of new format, where instead of having a part two, we're going to have many parts, because I oftentimes find myself trying to cram information into the second hour, and then it gets a little bit stressful. And also, moving forward, trying to have the people who are paying to get a little bit more bang for their buck because moving forward I'm not going to be able to create as much content because of some new endeavors and paths in my life. So, I need to balance things out in their proper ordering and look at it as a whole. And that's exactly what we're going to try to do here in regards to Eastern versus Western Christianity. Look at things on the whole because there's a lot of bad blood that tends to come from these types of disputes and arguments that you especially find in the alt-media circuits and the laity trying to work out these issues, or when they're deliberating which one they might want to join if they believe there's something true about Catholic Christianity and apostolic succession, well, which one are you going to join? Which one's true? And honestly, to be perfectly frank... I think it's more about how you treat people when you deal with these issues than the ultimate choice in and of itself. I know that's probably very controversial to say, and I would probably catch a lot of flack from the Roman Catholic side of things. How dare you allow for schismatics to be schismatic or whatever it is. But if you want any sort of reunion in sight, the only way to get by on sticking strong to your principles and your beliefs and what you believe to be true and convincing the other side of those things, you need to be able to engage in those debates and deliberations with charity. That, in my opinion, is the key and that's what the Apostle Paul tells us and that's exactly what we described in the last episode where I was mansplaining about all the things moving forward and the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing. It's all centered around that. So this episode, and the many parts that will follow, is going to be an attempt to do just that, and not assume malintent coming from the other side. Welcome to episode number 36. This is one that I've wanted to do for a little while now and discuss some of the issues between Eastern versus Western Christianity, or what becomes Eastern Orthodoxy versus the Roman Catholic Church. And since we're going to go in a little bit of a new direction in how we deal with the podcast and try to make several parts to any particular episode, this one is going to be the Kickstarter of it, because there are going to be a lot of other parts that go with this episode number 36 of East versus West, we might get to six, seven, maybe even eight parts because there's a lot to cover. But what we're going to do here in the free hour is go through all the broad strokes and then 
we'll cover them in detail and give the proper sourcing and citations for everything as we go through this and break it down piece by piece and period by period. And the reason I'm doing this is not to bash Eastern Orthodoxy. In fact, I respect it quite a bit. And back during my deliberation between the two pillars of Protestantism and occultism being caught somewhere in the middle, well, I was confronted with the East-West choice. So the point of this whole episode is to perhaps help people who might be in a similar position that I was in, where they see the validity of Christianity, they see the problems with Protestantism, and now they're just torn between Eastern and Western claims to apostolic succession. And I sympathize because there's a lot of good arguments, in my opinion, on both sides. And each side thinks that it has some ironclad zinger of irrefutability. And when the other side doesn't accept that, all of a sudden they become a willful deceiver and intentionally spreading lies against your version of Catholicism. Or they're some sort of agent of an intelligence agency that you don't like, like the CIA or the KGB or some sort of horrible heretic who is the spirit of Antichrist and must be combated at all costs. Rally the troops, we're going to war with the papists, or with the schismatics, or whatever. It gets a bit absurd when people take this crusader mentality against the other faction of Catholicism, again, be it East or West, because you are violating what we mentioned in the last episode that was the whole reason for the big change. The idea of charity superseding all these other things, such as worldly knowledge, historical knowledge, theological knowledge, and mountains of faith. All those things mean nothing, according to the Apostle Paul, if you don't have charity and be able to deal with your brother, even if there's some fundamental disagreements. So that is the spirit of of why I'm doing this for the people in the middle who don't like that type of behavior, but you still have to deal with logical arguments and refutations and things like that. And you have to absorb all that to make a more informed decision. And if people take all of this and they make their informed decision on joining the Eastern Orthodox church, I actually, I know this is controversial to say, I view that as a win on the whole, as long as they're not joining, there's some caveats because they have an enmity towards Rome, meaning maybe they were a Protestant and they can continue their anti-Catholicism by joining the Eastern Orthodox. That, in my opinion, is a problem. Now, that would be a problem on the flip side, but I haven't seen any examples that I could come across where somebody seems like they joined Roman Catholicism so they could go on some crusade against Eastern Christianity. I just don't see that happening. And so I think that that is also very telling. And I also think that it takes two to tango. A lot of conflict is a two-way street. Sometimes there's more cars on one side or the other that's driving it. And sometimes, depending on the situation, the location, the time period, one side might have more cars than the other driving the conflict, and other times it's the opposite. So, like I said, I have a lot of respect for Eastern Orthodoxy or the Eastern churches in general, as long as they don't do those things that I think breed enmity and division in a way that is quote-unquote satanic or adversarial or become ortho bros, as some might call it. 
and that goes for both sides. So what we're going to do is in this first part, I'm going to give some examples of things I've heard from the Eastern Orthodox side that are polemicizing and attacking Rome and things that I think there are fundamental issues with what they're saying for a variety of reasons. And I'm going to go through the standards of how we're going to judge that and dissect such polemics. And this all relates to the many questions that I encountered in this journey of figuring out which side I thought made more sense to me. So it's kind of a mixture of those two things where these are the questions you'll probably encounter. This will be my observations and insights into my own journey into that, and also taking certain polemics from Eastern Orthodox that I've heard and continue to hear that I think have a lot of problems. I think they have some good critiques and some solid points against Roman Catholicism, but the ones that I'm mentioning are the ones that I think are problematic and breed either bad behavior or they're not seeing that they're not measuring up to their own standards very well when it's put back upon them. So my point is here, and this is very important for everyone to understand, especially if you're on the Eastern Orthodox side, in regards to those polemics against Rome that I just mentioned, if you don't say these things, if you don't do these things, if you don't succumb to these types of polemics and hypocrisies, then my beef is not with you, and I respect you if you are able to see past these things. Or perhaps maybe somebody's caught up on a couple of these things, and maybe they might see it a little bit differently now. And the other thing I would mention is that I'm taking a collection of polemics that are extracted from a variety of individuals that I've heard throughout the years. One person might do one of these things, but not do all the others. So I can't deliberate and differentiate between every single individual and how they order all of these things. I'm saying that collective opinions and influence matters because that is something that obviously influences people on the whole and individuals when they are seeing these things being said and they don't know all the information or they're not able to read epic amounts of literature to go through all the details because of their situation in life. So they have to pick their battles, absorb what they can, and be intuitive about a lot of things. And I think the intuitive nature is seeing the type of behavior that comes from people when they engage in these types of arguments and how they present them and how they treat other people. Because I think that actually influences people more often than not than the arguments themselves. Even if the people promoting the arguments are right technically, the reality is most people are going to see the behavior first, and that's going to probably be more of a primary motivator of their decision unless they're really intellectually minded. But most people aren't going to care so much about that. And I actually am kind of one of them, despite having a vested interest in understanding the history and a lot of the academic aspects of it, save for the high theology that is beyond my grasp. So, let's mention the criteria here for judging all the things that we're going to go through. The first and most important is doing exactly as Christ commands. The same standards of measurement or judgment that you dish out on others, well, measure that back and see how you stand up. And this can also be supported by the passages of taking the log out of your own eye before you attack the speck in your brother's, 
meaning don't make a huge deal out of minor issues if you got a gigantic issue that you're completely ignoring and trying to deflect onto somebody else. So it's the classic projecting what you're doing onto other people or attacking small little things while not admitting your own big problems and flaws during the process. This also relates to other passages on the Pharisees' behavior, where they strain the gnats but swallow the camel. Right? To unkosher things that you're not supposed to eat, they'll pick out all the gnats in their soup, but they'll eat a dish of camel, which is a giant animal that's not kosher, and they don't have a problem doing that. So the point is, don't attack small little stupid things or venial sins and act like they're mortal ones while also committing mortal sins yourself. And I use those things in a broad sense. You don't have to apply them specifically to the Roman Catholic way of ordering those. I'm just using them as a general archetype. But nonetheless, they still apply in the broad sense because that is what the Pharisees were called out for. Neglecting the bigger commandments like, you know, adultery, divorce, stuff like that, honoring your father and mother versus these small little ritual purities that just had to do with things of lesser importance. And, in addition to dealing with the pharisaical behavior, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, as far as I understand, is related to attributing to Satan the works of God, or vice versa. So, for example, if it was God's will to have Constantine be the emperor that was going to help establish Christianity as an official religion, and that brings about the kingdom that Christ was constantly talking about, and then Protestants say, oh, that was a pagan corruption and this evil thing, and that's where Christianity went off the rails. Well, if that's not the case, and this was God's will and how he wanted it established, even if the ways of men didn't quite understand it, well, is that an example of potentially violating that passage of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and attributing Constantine and Rome bringing together these two cultures as the works of Satan, where it's actually the works of God. Something to think about. And I think we could probably extract out of that in a more secondary way the sin of attributing bad intentions or ill will onto other people and not understanding their viewpoint in the decisions they make or the things that happen. So if you want to blame a conspiracy against Charlemagne or the Frankish kings and that they're just evil power grabbers and that the Pope is using them to basically usurp Byzantine authority and be heretical and evil and wicked, well, maybe you should understand the context of why they're doing that and look back at your own empire and see what they're doing that might also be kind of wicked and causing a lot of problems. So my point is, at the least, things often end up being a wash. One side claims one thing, they might have some legitimacy, but the other side can measure that right back, and the other side doesn't look very good in comparison. So they both kind of look foolish, and that's the idea of Satan casting out Satan, dividing himself, that can't stand. However, there's also understandings to be had of God's providence and judgment, which is something that both sides would view as legitimate. And maybe there's some more ominous signs that are kind of in your face, and perhaps even the village idiot might recognize it. Even if they don't understand all the high theology and all the things that go with that, 
what if they're not seeing the forest for the trees and there's some very obvious things that God allows that most people should be able to recognize? And does God only speak to people who are theologically sound and have a bunch of intelligence? I'd say if you look at the gospel, it's kind of the opposite, where all of these poor and disenfranchised and a lot of these apostles that were the despised of society or the Amharits, if you will, the fishermen or tax collectors or the sinners or whatever, they were the ones who, yes, they had their problems, but they recognized Christ as Messiah. They knew that there was something true there. And the Pharisees, with all of their learning and knowledge, were calling God Satan and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And then someone like Paul, who came from that caste, who knew all the fancy theology, he ends up telling you that that's all worthless if you don't have charity. So dropping the intellectual elitism and looking at some of the more obvious, ominous things that have happened that, in my opinion, are kind of plain as day that transcend all of these convoluted issues and people trying to deflect away from those fundamental things that are pretty obvious, like politicians do. And as we see going on right now, which is most pronounced, most overt in the leftist takeover of the West and in particular America. And so the last things I'll mention before we move on to the topics is that I think throughout history, Eastern and Western Christianity have been attacked in the same ways by all the enemies of the church. Whereas Protestantism is different. It's not attacked in the same ways. It just kind of does what it does and splits into a million different things where any of the splits in the Eastern and Western Catholicism, you know, little splits between them, they're much more contained. There's like a controlled chaos versus an open borders chaos of the splits in Protestantism. That's how I would explain it. I think that that's the difference. And I think that that really is the fundamental issue of what is the kingdom of God. It's not going to be pretty, and the standards of man are always going to think it's supposed to be this utopia, similar to how the Jews expected a Messiah that was just going to militarily destroy the Roman Empire. Instead, they got one that suffered a humiliating death on a cross and said, you all have to follow me and be martyrs. Not probably what they wanted. And is that the issue with a lot of people who reject Catholicism, again, be it East or West, is that they want the church to be what it is on their own terms. And then the more they try to show you how the real Christianity was supposedly supposed to be and instituted, but then got lost amongst all these usurpers and the paganizing of Constantine and all that crap you hear. Well, their alternative version ends up descending into so many worse things and then they keep trying to justify them and deflect and then blame Rome, blame Rome. It's all the Catholic Church or it's all, you know, whatever, paganism and Constantine. And a lot of those things end up attacking the East and West in the same way as coming from the WASP establishment. And then that leads into masonry and there's all these other things that go along with that. And obviously Islam and Judaism. So in my opinion... That is very telling of the link between the East and West. And I'd also mention that I think it's very interesting that there was a North and a South Israel that didn't always get along so well in the Old Testament. And maybe in the New Covenant, instead of North and South, it's now perhaps East and West. I'm not saying that's a dogma. I'm just saying, to me, that's a pretty interesting 
parallel in a broad sense. I also think that there's a tendency on the Roman Catholic side to overly polemicize Russia and blame everything on the KGB. But I also think you get that right back from a lot of people in the Eastern Orthodox, especially the Russian Orthodox side, where they think everything is a CIA op and everybody's a Western intelligence agent trying to destroy them. What if both sides have shady intelligence history of KGB communism and CIA Americanism, and they both suck and they both subvert the church and they are both working against Christianity and they are both tares amongst the wheat. And there's both heroic preservers of tradition on Eastern Western sides battling against them. Wow. What a strange notion. Now I know the whole Fatima phenomenon creates a lot of issues there, but we're not going to touch upon that here. We'll discuss that later. Another thing that the Roman Catholic side tends to do is criticize the East for being lax on divorce and contraception, but the Catholic Church has all these problems with annulments, which, if you just strip it down to the bare bones, Forrest Gump understanding, it's just basically divorce with some legalism to feel good about it. And it's taking legitimate exceptions and making them into the rule, as tends to happen with the spirit of Vatican II. And that sometimes just saying McKees isn't good enough for people, at least without any additional insights. Let's not act like there aren't good arguments against it. And that's how I feel about Eastern Orthodox in general. I think uh, they have the best claims to traditional apostolic Christianity out of anyone who is also questioning the legitimacy of the Roman Catholic Church. So that's my point. They have a lot of things that I think need to be respected, even if um, the Roman side doesn't agree, and they're still fundamental issues. Uh, to not be able to be understanding of why they take this or that position, I think, is a big mistake. And lamentably, I think a lot of the problems throughout the years, uh, 2,000 years of history including the present day, is often attributed to not being able to define terms properly. And when things get lost in translation, there seems to be this penchant or this temptation to automatically assume ill intent on the part of the other person whom you're getting confused by what they're saying or you think there might be something quote-unquote heretical in what they're saying. And people thinking a broad term meaning one thing where another group of people think another thing and then everybody starts calling each other heretics and maybe they actually agree on the same thing. There's just an issue in language and defining terms. And this goes back to the Roman versus Greek culture. The Greek culture, as far as I understand, had a lot more eloquence, a lot more uh, ability to think of things abstractly and to have words that had a lot of depth of meaning whereas the Latin culture was a little more basic, a little more straightforward and ordered and perhaps more rigid. And both of those things can have their pros and cons. Uh, a rigidness can get rid of subverters and heretics really quickly, but an abstractness can also allow for people to come into the church who might otherwise be turned off by the rigidness and be able to express the core principles, but with more possibilities and more openness 
in a more eloquent way of relating and harmonizing that is useful that people might otherwise reject some of the rigid things that might be forced, right? But at the same time, that can lead to a little bit of laxity or too much broadness, too much philosophy, and not as much implementation in the practical world and, you know, understanding the minds of the farmers who don't need all that high-minded abstract philosophy. So like I said, pros and cons on both sides. And the ideal is to have them work together. Like Paul says, have the meat eaters and the veggie eaters be able to get along, the Greeks and the Jews to get along, the Mars-inclined people and the Venusian-inclined people, the jocks and the geeks, the hippies and the frat boys, whatever it is, and not having them unify on immorality and sexual degeneracy, right? But rather on the morality and the universal teachings of the church and the sacraments. That's the unifying thing. So taking something that perhaps is a minor theological issue, but when a political opportunity arises, now all of a sudden you make it into a, be a major thing and get a propaganda campaign to incite the passions of the people. And then you have enmity, division, and Satan casting out Satan. So to close out the rest of the first free hour, we're going to summarize all the things we're going to go through and I will mention a lot of the claims or the things I hear said to attack Rome that when you measure those same standards of judgment back, it's at the least a neutral wash where both sides are violating the same standards. But when you're projecting everything on the other side and ignoring the log in your own, that's a problem. Or perhaps when those same standards are measured back, you actually look worse by comparison, which is a lot more embarrassing in my opinion. So the first thing I'll mention, and the thing we'll get into in this second hour, we'll be dealing with the time period of the Emperor Constantine up until Charlemagne. There's a lot of things that go with the development of Byzantium, and then this idea of another Holy Roman Emperor of the West, and that obviously is a point of contention or a lot of conflict um, that I think is often misunderstood as well. And the book that we'll be going through, just to mention it real quick, is The Holy Roman Empire by Peter H. Wilson, A Thousand Years of Europe's History. And we'll just be going through the first part of the Two Swords chapter, a couple of subchapters, but we can extract a lot from it. So this is not written by a Roman Catholic, as far as I understand. It just seems to be by a secular historian. So I don't think there's any overt bias that is built into his writings. So the first polemic that you hear, and this isn't just from Eastern Orthodox, this is from Protestant and wherever, is that the Pope is this temporal despot, and he's acting like he's this god-emperor and has all this authority that... Christ in the early church never would have allowed or never would have instituted. So basically, it's this centralized, satanic antichrist of power that the See of Peter has created for itself. But what I found strange in this book is that it's kind of the opposite, where Byzantium, once Constantine establishes the new capital in Constantinople, they retain the centralized imperial structure and that translated more to the Eastern churches, whereas the Western churches and in the city of Rome, they were a lot more decentralized and they weren't as tied uh, to the emperor or bound to the political machinations. 
which also resulted in a lack of protection against invading heathen or infidels. So, strangely enough, what I just described was the position of Rome, and then it seems to get reversed. And that's something that's very interesting, I think, moving forward, that we'll examine. When each side is in the same basic situation, sometimes they don't always act the same. And we'll let you decide which ones you think uh, act more appropriately at any given time. So, when the Pope is accused of being a god-emperor temporal despot, and that the move to crown Charlemagne and make the Holy Roman Empire was anything but holy, it seems odd to me that the Byzantine emperor and power, which had the Greek culture predominantly driving it, they start out as the ones that have the emperor being kind of the head honcho, and he is the head of the temporal realm who's supposed to protect the clergy, but he's kind of acting like an alleged god-emperor of the church because he's the one who's often appointing different clergy or patriarchs that are more inclined towards his particular theological flavors, which could often be more uh, a bit heretical at times. And then in the face of that, you find the Bishop of Rome, who is usually opposed to a lot of those heretical positions and very vehement about it and unbudging, even at the expense of protection or their own lives, depending on the situation. Again, these are generalizations. You can always find exceptions. And this is the struggle. I'm not saying no Byzantine emperors were ever good. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that that was the temptation and that was actually a source of a lot of the problems, it would seem, and a lot of back-and-forth power struggles for the throne of the Byzantine emperor. And it's very centralized, whereas with Rome, it's decentralized, and they're running more on the oral tradition and the moral teachings and a lack of political power or military might. So the point is, the Greek culture becomes the predominant one because Rome falls to the barbarians, and the Greek culture has the more centralized political and military power. So it seems weird for them to project that later onto the papacy in Charlemagne and the idea of crowning emperors and being a temporal despot when that was actually how they were uh, in the beginning. So at the least, that's a wash. You can't get all cranky about the Pope and a Holy Roman Emperor of the West, and Charlemagne, and everything beyond that, and just pretend like there wasn't some political centralization with abuses and machinations and usurpations coming from the East. And if you don't agree with that interpretation, I guess go take it up with Peter H. Wilson, not me, because I'm just extracting things from his book. And along those same lines of these types of polemics where they say, the Pope having this ultimate power is this horrible despotic thing, and that wasn't intended to have this top-down imposition on everyone else. Well, I think that it would have been actually very beneficial to the Eastern churches in Byzantium because there were a lot of heresies that were spreading, and that despite the centralization, a lot of these emperors were also enabling heresy themselves and trying to enforce it on Rome. 
kind of like a pope, except for instead, it's a political entity, not a church entity. And in the meantime, you have all these heresies spreading in all these other Eastern churches that eventually succumb to Turkish rule. Well, they could have benefited from a centralized, top-down authority of saying this and this and this is a dogma, and if you violate these things, you're out of the church. So that could have actually helped, in my opinion, because there were a lot of issues around the divinity of Christ's nature, I believe, in the Coptic churches in Syria and Egypt, while they were still in Byzantine dominion or territory. So a papal decree from the top down probably could have solved a lot of those problems. And then you have issues of Persian forces or later Muslim forces who are attacking Byzantium. And another polemic you'll often hear is that the East was fighting off the Muslims and the West wasn't really doing much to help them. And it's basically their fault for Byzantium falling because they didn't do enough to help. But long before Islam was a twinkle in Satan's eye, as Catholics might describe it, you had barbarians invading Rome and Byzantium was supposed to help protect the Bishop of Rome in that area against such barbarians. Now, I know the East is still fighting those same barbarians, and from what I've read, sometimes they were successful in helping out Rome, sometimes not. But more often than not, it seems that Rome couldn't really rely on that protection, which was increasingly waning over time. But my point is, do you see Roman Catholics today crying over spilt milk and saying, how dare you, Byzantium, not protect Rome, and the fall of Rome happened, and all this stuff. But when it comes to the Muslims attacking Byzantium, all of a sudden, many Eastern Orthodox will blame Rome for that, or make that as an excuse uh, in terms of their woes. And if you measure those same judgment standards out, it doesn't really make the East polemics against Rome for that look very good by comparison. And then on the flip side, you have the Enlightenment people blaming both sides and basically saying, oh, the, the pagan tolerance and the republics were so amazing before this awful usurpation by Byzantine emperors and forcing into law an oppressive Dark Ages Christianity. And that basically led to the fall. And then they made a big deal about the fall of Rome, where at the time, back in the day, I guess, it was something that happened, and people just dealt with it. It wasn't like this cataclysmic thing, as far as I understand. And that's stuff we'll talk about in part two. And Rome kind of solved its own problem later with the Frankish kings, which we'll get into. And back to the point about the West not doing enough to help the East fight the Muslims. I mean, that's kind of the point of the Crusades, even if there were some issues there, and even if the Fourth Crusade had that rogue debacle, which we'll talk about. You can't act like Rome never did anything. If, if you don't understand the position of the Western churches and all their struggles, then you're going to polemicize unfairly. Whereas from the Catholic side, there's a lot of sympathies to be had and understood with Byzantium and what they were dealing with and the types of problems. But my point is that the same standards of measurement aren't getting judged back and forth even if a lot of things end up being awash in terms of errors and mistakes. And again, in light of the claims or the polemics saying that the Pope is acting as a temporal despot and trying to manipulate all of these different kings into doing his bidding and stuff like that, 
Well, oftentimes that completely omits all of these popes who are basically pleading with different kings of the West to come and help Byzantium fight against the Muslims. Now, I know there's some more honorable things about the Crusades, and there's some more lamentable things about the Crusades, and obviously the Fourth Crusade debacle was one of those big things, and as I've mentioned, we'll get to that. But on the whole, if you look at things like the Council of Claremont and what the popes are doing and trying to help the East, there seems to be an earnest effort to help save Byzantium. Sometimes the European kings answered that call, Sometimes they didn't, sometimes their reasons were more understandable than others, and sometimes there were abuses that happened in these crusades. But nonetheless, from the reading that I've done, it seems to me that if these kings listen to the Pope in the way that the Eastern polemicizers think that everybody listens to the Pope as a god-emperor, then I think Byzantium might have actually been saved. I think it would have been a great benefit, and that's kind of a strange irony. I think it's lost among this, and the Fourth Crusade is a great example of this. So moving on to Charlemagne and the Frankish kings, Frankish conspiracy. We'll talk about that in a second. Well, there's often this accusation that Charlemagne and the creation of him as the Holy Roman Emperor in the West now instead of the East, well, that's just a papal power grab and political maneuvering, and this awful usurpation, and basically a satanic uh, deception, or whatever it is, right? There's this polemic that insinuates that they never had any noble intentions, they were always to uh, usurp the East in some malicious way. Now, what I found very interesting in reading this book that I did not know about, um, and I actually... Just to be honest, I went into reading this first thousand years of Christianity and history. I was actually kind of under the assumption that I would be much more sympathetic to Byzantium um, over the Roman Catholic Church. But I found that, again, these are the issues that come up. There's a lot of polemics that go against Rome that are completely distorting things or exaggerating things or not even understanding the situation of the Western Church and its struggles. So, here we have the Western Roman Empire or churches that have succumbed to barbarian invasions. The popes in Rome have a history of being martyred and bullied around by all of these different forces that want power in the temporal sphere. Byzantium is not helping to the extent that they are supposed to, and we're not going to blame them for that. We're not going to play the blame game here. That's just the reality of the situation. So, they start working with particular tribes. In particular, I believe it was the Merovingians that started out and converting into Christianity. And then eventually Charlemagne and the Carolingians take over, and then there's a crowning of Charlemagne on Christmas Day, and that's a big moment. But, what is also missed is that there were Byzantine emperors that weren't behaving so well and weren't really behaving very uh, Christian-like, whereas Charlemagne and eventually, you know, those Frankish kings were very zealous for conversion of Europe. Yes, there were some issues of forced conversion at times. There were mistakes. But on the whole, they were really invested in converting other barbarian tribes to Christianity. And if they had to use their sword here and there for particular instances, sometimes it was more just, sometimes it was more lamentable. But on the whole, this evangelization of the barbarians in Europe 
was more of a Western church thing, as far as I understand. And meanwhile, you have Byzantine emperors who are gouging out each other's eyes and cutting off their tongues to usurp. And you have one instance where a mother of a Byzantine emperor has a hit put out on him to cut out his eyes because you would be seen as unfit to rule if you can't see or you can't speak, right? And so if you place out mafia-type hits on people to do that, then who's next in line? Well, you can try to make a power grab. So this Empress Irene blinds her own son. Now, granted, her own son had some problems of his own on adultery and ordering hits for eye-gouging and tongue-cutting, and that she's actually seen as a more venerated figure in the church. Um, but it's very complicated. And that's my point. This is the type of behavior that's going on back and forth, back and forth, eye gouging, tongue cutting, usurpation. Some usurpations are more justified than others. But let's not act like it was a kumbaya paradise lost. Everything was just fantastic in Byzantium and Rome was just this evil usurping machination of popes created in a haze of jealous enmity that was up for a power grab. Can you at least understand why the papacy did what they did, even if you think that they did it in a shady way? Is it any better in the East? And as far as I know, Charlemagne made an attempt to marry this woman and unify. So there was a unification factor involved as well. It wasn't just, we hate the East, they're done. And I'm not saying there wasn't any eye gouging or tongue cutting out going on in the West. I'm just saying that, again, no side can really claim superiority here on the whole. But I think if you look at it, the Charlemagne side of it and trying to expand Christianity to all these barbarian tribes that are a problem might be a better solution and more Christian and in line with the gospel than all the shenanigans and problems going on with the Byzantine emperors or empresses. And to be fair, we will talk about some examples of the Byzantine emperors trying to expand Christianity, but it also created a lot more issues than it seemed to solve. And that's stuff that we're going to go into in detail in the next part of this episode. So I'm not going to go into that anymore. Those are the broad strokes. So with Christianity spreading all over these barbarian territories where they're doing heathen type things, but shouldn't it be a win for Christianity with the West, making Europe Christian or being more of a force in that than the East, I think that that should be something that is celebrated, not polemicized. Then you sometimes hear the claim that the bad theology of something like the Filioque eventually led to the atheism of the West. Yes, a thousand plus years later, finally the Filioque led to Western materialism and atheism and Masonic societies. Now think of how absurd this is when you compare it back. Does this mean that the essence-energies distinction led to atheist Russia? Like, you could make that same exact claim against the Russian Orthodox, which succumbed to that type of crazy leftist atheism, but is it very convenient to promote that now because people are mostly focused on the West succumbing to all of that and the elephant in the room is what I just mentioned. And that is what gets lost in that, in my opinion, sophistry. So back in 1917, could I have just made that same claim back then using that same criteria of judgment that those types of Eastern polemics are being made now against 
the state of the West. And that's a hundred years later. And acted like, oh, yeah, yeah, essence energy obviously leads to communist Russia. Well, if you're trying to use that and the downfall of your brethren to exalt yourself and bring people into the church, are you building on faulty foundations? Well, I'm not saying the essence of energy that led to atheist Russia. I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying that if you're using those same criteria, why couldn't I say that? Now, I know they'll probably complain about the Enlightenment, but we'll get to that as well. And as far as I understand, the filioque was something that was added to deal with the Aryans to help them convert during this whole crusade of conversion of Europe, and Arian heresies were a huge problem. And that's one I know that Byzantium was strongly opposed to, so they should have an understanding of that, you would think. And so if that's helping them to convert and deliberate what's going on in that creed, is that innovation a bad thing? Now, I understand taking it back and trying to impose the filioque on the East and being dogmatic about it, that is not a good way of dealing with protestations from the East over the filioque. So is that a fighting fire with fire? I'm not trying to say that Rome is in the right in all these instances here. But to not have an understanding about why the filioque was even instituted to begin with, I think, is a big problem coming from the Eastern Orthodox who will just make this all-encompassing polemic against the filioque as some evil heresy or something like that. That's my point. So we're not neglecting things like the donation of Constantine or uh, trying to impose things of the Holy Roman Emperor and the West onto the East or anything like that. Those things are all big issues and, and you know, donation of Constantine is obviously a shameful thing from the Roman Catholic side of the equation. But I don't see any Roman Catholics trying to defend the donation of Constantine, or if there are, I haven't seen many of them. And they'll at least admit that that was a, a lamentable thing. Versus sometimes something like the Massacre of the Latins is defended or downplayed and not seen as a very big deal coming from the East, which I think was a very lamentable thing as well. And to wrap up on the Filioque stuff, I think that the whole Photian schism that was, you know, using the Filioque, I think that that was a political opportunism and really just led to a lot of things that I think were unnecessary. We'll talk about that in a later episode. I've done some reading on it. but. Weren't creeds used for this purpose anyway to set straight things so people didn't fall into heresy? And if something evolves in that way, I don't really see a huge problem with it. I don't see why it's heretical. And I feel like a lot of the theology that people argue about over the filioque is just, it just sounds silly to me. It's just like you're arguing over three words and this procession that a lot of it just seems to be this metaphysical, I don't know, just abstract thinking that like, why are you getting so upset about this? People got worse problems than figuring out where the Trinity proceeds from or whatever. Like, come on, just get over it. And it's kind of lost that this probably helped prevented a lot of the Arian heresy from spreading, which again, by Byzantium's own criteria, was a big problem. I don't have a problem with people arguing about it, but don't exalt it to a level of importance that supersedes things that are foundational to the average everyday person as well as the highest theologian. So, with that in mind, moving on to the Fourth Crusade. Now, this relates back to our Catharsis episode we talked about. And so, there seems to be this anger towards the Fourth Crusade, and some seem to think that the Pope ordered it to sack Constantinople, and that it was a Catholic conspiracy, and Rome, 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 bad guy, bad guy, bad guy. However... 
And looking into this issue, I found a lot of problems with that general disposition. The first and most obvious is like, dude, this happened 800 years ago. Get over it. This is like Talmudic rabbis getting mad that the Talmud was burned 777 years. (laughs) Interesting number. Before the burning of the Lady of Catholicism, Notre Dame Cathedral, where the Talmud Sophia or feminine wisdom was burnt by those evil Frankish kings. And I find it strange that the Eastern Orthodox tends to polemicize against the Frankish kings just as much as the Jews do in their history books because they're upset that their Sophia, their little Talmudic Sophia, got burnt because it contained blasphemies against Christ and Our Lady. So shouldn't the Orthodox be understanding of that, especially considering the Jewish attacks on especially the Russian Orthodox and the Bolshevik Revolution? Shouldn't there be an area of understanding there rather than this all-out polemicizing of Frankish kings where they would rather side with the propaganda of their greatest enemy, the tradition that rejected Christ and modern Judaism? They'd rather side with them in the same propaganda against Rome rather than have an understanding of the Frankish kings combating Talmudic religion. And isn't that ironically similar to people in the East who have said that they'd rather be under Turkish rule than under Roman Catholic tyranny or hegemony? I believe that that was the sentiments of some people during the times that led up to the fall of Constantinople. And perhaps you could also compare this to the Jews in southern France who would prefer to promote a Cathar heresy that calls their own god an abortion, but they'll promote that heresy that hates their own God because it's attacking the Catholic Church. So my point is you get into some very strange relationships with odd bedfellows when it comes to polemicizing and attacking Rome across the board, whatever viewpoint you have. And it's one of those, uh, I guess, what would you call it? Ominous things. Why do you side with the greatest enemies of Christianity against Rome if you're calling yourself Christian? That should be a huge red flag. Moving on. The Fourth Crusade. Well, first of all, it was ordered to go and help fight the Muslims, which would help the Byzantine Empire, right? Exactly what they were asking for is support from Rome. But the Fourth Crusade goes rogue, and first it attacks a Catholic city, not an Eastern Church city in Zara, which I believe is in modern-day Croatia. I'm probably not pronouncing that city right. But nonetheless, that's where it goes first. And as soon as it attacks this Catholic city, the Pope denounces it and says, stop, stop doing what you're doing, you're excommunicated, all that stuff, right? The Pope is completely distancing himself from that and even warns them not to do anything else. And I think there was some suspicions that it might go rogue. And here's yet another instance. If they had listened to the Pope, this supposed God-Emperor despot that all the Catholics worship and just bow down to in complete submission, well, why didn't they submit in this instance? And if they did, if they had listened to the Pope, Byzantium might have actually not fallen and been defended. And this Fourth Crusade debacle, which is kind of seen as solidifying the schism in the eyes of most people, would not have happened if they had listened to the Pope. And the other thing is that when they went to sack Constantinople after that, 
there was an exiled Byzantine emperor involved. So one of Byzantium's own was involved in orchestrating this sack of Constantinople. I can't remember the logistics exactly. I think it's like a prince who was defending his father who was an emperor, and then he became an emperor later. Something like that. We'll discuss that when we get to that episode. But the point is, there were Byzantium politics involved in the sack of Constantinople. So you can't act like this is a Roman Catholic plot when you have a Byzantine emperor involved in getting it to happen. And also, there's some weirdness going on with Venice and Constantinople in this. And this is something we'll do a whole episode on and address all this, because there's a lot here that might be esoteric in regards to the Kabbalistic Jews and that Venice-Constantinople-Prague connection, that uh, Kabbalistic triangle, if you will, that we talked about in the Age of Secrecy episode. And there's also some Andronikos Komnenos weirdness. This is Anatoly Fomenko's Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that he's from Russia, so is there an anti-Western thing going on here? His alternative history that basically says the Jesuits are evil and rewriting history and Christianity's a lie. And the real Christ was this Andronikos emperor of Byzantium who massacred the Latins and has weird connections with Venice. And I wonder if there's something going on here that's Kabbalistic, Talmudic banking, Merchant of Venice type stuff that's going on with Andronikos, Jews in Constantinople, and also Venice, and then Christians succumbing to temptations. Something weird there. And I think that that might be a hidden thing that is lost amongst all of this. So we'll explore that later. But back to the Crusades. I've done a decent amount of reading on this Fourth Crusade, and then some on the Massacre of the Latins. And what I find odd is I've heard it said that, from some particular uh, Eastern Orthodox that they think the massacre of the Latins is over-exaggerated and it's not as big of a deal and that the Fourth Crusade was this horrible, awful thing. And we'll talk about this more when we get to that part of the episode. But I'll just say, at the least, it seems to be a wash in terms of they're both pretty awful and I think trying to make the massacre of the Latins out to be this side footnote in history and not really a big deal and over-exaggerated is kind of bizarre because not many people even know about it. How can it be over-exaggerated when hardly anybody even talks about it? And also that it happened before the Fourth Crusade, and also that it only really ever tends to get brought up as a sort of counterpunch when the Fourth Crusade is brought up to attack the Roman Catholic Church. So my point is, the Roman Catholic side doesn't constantly bring up the massacre of the Latins and hold it in the face of anybody in the Eastern Church these days, it's only brought up if they start polemicizing the Fourth Crusade. It's a counterpunch. So otherwise, it wouldn't even be an issue. It would be forgiven and forgotten. But for whatever reason, the Eastern side seems to constantly bring up the Fourth Crusade like it killed their own grandmother, but it was 800 years ago. And so, the other thing that relates back to the Cathars episode we did if you'll recall, if you listen to that, remember that the Cathar heresy, the Gnostic Manichaean dualism and all that stuff that the Eastern Orthodox would call heretical, well, that came from Byzantium and the Bogomils area and Constantinople was like the centralized area for that heresy. And a Cathar bishop came from Constantinople, Papa Nisitas, and he spread it in the Western churches in Southern France. So here's the interesting bit. And this, again, is this a divine providence moment 
that's kind of ominous if you just understand these basic things, that the source of the Gnostic heresy came from Constantinople. The Pope orders two crusades within a decade of each other. One is the Fourth Crusade to help Byzantium fight the Muslims. That goes rogue by something completely unexpected and perhaps divine providence. And it sacks the very city where the Gnostic heresy came from. And the Cathar Crusade, the Pope ordered it, and it did what it was told to do. Now, granted, it did uh, have a lot of collateral damage, and that's why they came up with the Inquisition to target specific people, so there wouldn't be a massive crusade killing a lot of people that maybe didn't deserve to be killed. But on the whole, they had to deal with these Cathars because they were freaking crazy, as we saw. So that crusade does what the Pope asked, and the very heresy that came from Constantinople was purged, or they had to go underground or go into the Lombard area of Italy. And in an unfortunate situation, the source of that heresy in Constantinople was sacked in a way that had nothing to do with the Pope's orders. So one crusade obeys the Pope, destroys the heresy that came from Constantinople, one disobeys the Pope and goes and attacks the very city where that heresy came from. And again, is that an instance where you could chalk that up perhaps to divine providence? Um, I don't know, and I don't think that anybody should find joy in the Fourth Crusade going rogue. But nonetheless, is there an element of karma there that goes unseen, that is fairly ominous in a sort of fear of the Lord kind of way? And that's all i got to say about that. So, moving on, we mentioned the Frankish conspiracy that's sometimes alleged by certain Eastern Orthodox against the Church. And the Merovingians are included in that. So my question again would be, why are you siding with Jewish propaganda or like Da Vinci Code Gnostic stuff that we know that Jews have historically promoted to attack Christianity, like with the Cathars? So is this a subjective LARPing on history where all these different groups hate the Frankish kings, but they have a different interpretation about why they're bad and what is the alternative way of being that they were usurping? So we have the Nazis who hate the Frankish kings because they usurped the Aryan barbarian authority and they were apparently amazing and awesome. And you also have the Jews who are saying they're evil and wicked because they were persecuting the Jews and burning the Talmud and expelling them for usury, etc. And then you have the Eastern Orthodox who say they were evil and awful because they were usurping Christianity and Byzantium and their paradise lost, right? So Three different groups that are very different from each other, or four different groups, I would say, Jews, Gnostics, Nazis, and Eastern Orthodox. But they're all having the same propaganda campaign against the Frankish kings, albeit for different reasons and a different subjective LARPing on history. Again, is that a red flag elephant in the room that you have some very strange bedfellows when you get in a kumbaya campaign of propaganda against Rome, and Frankish kings. Moving on, let's talk about the fall of Byzantium. This is often blamed again on Rome for not doing enough uh, to help with the Muslims or whatever it is. There's lots of different things I've heard, but I can't keep track of them all. And also that the Council of Florence, which was going to unify the East and West, well, that's not a real council. And again, this shows a parallel, in my opinion, of sometimes there seems to be this... Uh, kind of alternative scripture alone where it becomes councils alone 
And then you have to get into all these debates on which councils are legit or not, similar to how the Protestants started to debate which books should be in the Bible or not. And so I see some interesting parallels there. That's my point. I'm not going to say anything other than that. As far as I understand, the Council of Florence, even if all these Eastern Orthodox reject it, it seems that there was agreements made to recognize the papacy and purgatory issues, I believe filioque issues or sacraments, stuff like that. There was a lot of things in the Eastern churches that were problems, and I think that this time period was trying to reconcile those things, and Florence recognized or reconciled uh, some of those major issues, as far as I understand. Now, again, this comes back to the criteria of accepting a council. Is there goalpost shifting when people debate on which council should be accepted or not? And in one instance, when it's convenient, it's accepted. But if you apply that same criteria to another council that's not convenient, they would have to accept that. This is something for people to debate that are much smarter than me on these issues. But I notice that these tend to be the accusations that happen. Um, So I figured I'd mention that. But I do know that a declaration was made by a Kiev cardinal in Hagia Sophia that the Council of Florence is legit and we're back with Rome and unification at last, right? And I think that this cardinal being from Kiev is very providential and something we'll get into later with the Jesuits in the Kiev Theology School. So as far as I understand, this council was rejected by the populace and the clergy. They rebelled. They didn't want to institute the reforms because they were Romish and they were heretical. And although representatives from the Pentarchy approved, as far as I know, uh, meaning the hierarchy, it was rejected on the whole and there were all these problems. So within one year of this rejection, Constantinople falls and this Pentarchy that consisted of Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, Constantinople, and Rome Out of all of these original ones that are kind of exalted in early Christianity, Rome is the only one that doesn't come under Muslim rule or Turkish control. Again, is that another one of those ominous, divine providence, obvious things that you can debate theology all you want and say, we're right, you're wrong, but how does God view it as moving throughout human history? It seems very telling to me that Rome is the only one left standing after all of these controversies in terms of the Muslims invading. And if Rome is Satan, does that mean that Satan prevailed over the church? You know, I don't know. So, I also find it very ominous that on the Feast of Pentecost is when Constantinople fell. And what is Pentecost? Well, that represents the sacrament of confirmation, where you come to spiritual maturity. And you think about the apostles having... You know, uh, good moments and bad moments. Peter is given the keys, whatever anybody thinks about what that means. And then the next moment he's called Satan for saying, Christ, don't go to the cross, right? So Peter is going through uh, some growing pains, right, along with all the other apostles. Uh, they, They have all these issues, but then Pentecost is seen as when they become legit badasses, for lack of a more sophisticated term. And that's the point of confirmation. You put away the things of a child, like Paul says, and that's a direct reference to Acts 2.2, which is about Pentecost in the Bible, and this is all part of the Catechism of the Council of Trent if you read on the Sacrament of Confirmation. So the point is, if this is about spiritual maturity and going back to apostolic succession, 
Isn't it strange that on the Feast of Pentecost, which is often when confirmation happens, as far as I know, it was a long time ago that I was confirmed, and I can't remember if it was on Pentecost or not. But nonetheless, if this is about spiritual maturity and there is some disputes going on, isn't it strange that the upper echelons approved this union, but it was rejected by all these others, and is that divinely providential and kind of ominous in a fear of the Lord kind of way that, wow, on that feast day, that's when Byzantium fell? Not gloating in that, not exulting in it. It's a woeful thing, but nonetheless, it's what happened. And if you tie all these things together, I don't understand how the Eastern Orthodox can polemicize against Rome and accuse them of all of these things with these elephants in the room not even mentioned or excuses being made such as, well, you didn't help us out enough to fight the Muslims. It's your fault. Is this a projection game? Is this a scapegoating game? And it's not so much about Rome never doing anything bad by comparison, but does the Roman side tend to admit its sins a little more often than the other side does? I think that's a general pattern that can be established, my personal opinion. And the last thing I would mention in terms of divine providence and kind of an ominous thing that I think even the most basics of minds could recognize as kind of a sign or a symbol. What happened when the Jews rejected Christ? Well, their temple was destroyed, and that was warned against. And what happened to that second temple in 70 AD later on? It was turned into a Muslim mosque, the Dome of the Rock, right? And that's what it is to this day, as far as I know. And that is a group that blasphemed the Holy Spirit, which was the Spirit poured out on Pentecost, right? And attributed to God things of Satan or vice versa, where they saw God in the flesh and they called them Satan, casting out demons by Beelzebub. So fast forward to all the conflicts that we've mentioned and what ended up happening to Hagia Sophia, kind of like the Vatican, if you will, of the East. Well, the Muslims took it over and made it into a mosque. And did they reject the Holy Spirit and something important about the Roman side that maybe was right on the issue and the Council of Florence, maybe it was just more of an agreement and honoring that and that the authorities recognized it as much as people want to act like it's not a valid council or whatever. Was it valid in God's eyes? Look what happened. Look at the elephant in the room Something got turned into a mosque that was very important to both Eastern and Western Christianity. And that is exactly what happened to the Jews who rejected God. But is this an instance where the church is being rejected and it didn't turn out so well? People can disagree with that. But for me, if I'm being honest, that's a pretty ominous thing. And that speaks more to me than people debating filioques and essences and energies Whereas God's providence and movement throughout human history and understanding all these fundamental things that are often lost on people, these are the things that are a lot more convincing to me personally than any theological arguments. That's my personal opinion. Other people might disagree. So I guess we'll kind of leave it at that because I think that expresses everything that we've needed to. But what we will go over also, try to make it as brief as we can because we're running out of time. Well, sometimes you'll hear these claims that the occult Renaissance Church of Rome just made the satanic Roman beast a thousand times more satanic than it ever could have been satanic previously. 
And then this created the Enlightenment that came and overtook Russia, and it's all the West's fault once again for the corruption of Russia. Well, it seems strange to me that a lot of that literature that came into the occult Renaissance Church of Rome actually came from Byzantium, where it was preserved. And we're not going to blame Byzantium for preserving texts of Neoplatonism and maybe some Gnostic stuff. What are you doing with it? How are you dealing with it, right? This is the idea of bringing in pagan philosophy into the early church. If you can transmute it and purge the bad things and co-opt the good things, that's a great way to evangelize and have a renaissance of sorts. And so for me, just to summarize in a basic point, there seems to be a fake renaissance and a real renaissance. The fake one created a lot of bad things, and that created the Protestant quote-unquote reformation, but oddly enough, there was a real reformation and a fake one, and perhaps it was the Council of Trent and the counter-reformation regime spearheaded by the Jesuits that was the real reform because they actually forbid the sales of indulgences, the very thing that Martin Luther was griping so much about and saying that this is what we're just trying to do, we're just trying to reform these abuses, but then they go off into all these other places and create thousand times worse abuses of their own with the trajectory of the Protestant nations. But nonetheless, setting that aside, this reflects in a way the Cathar Crusade going to the left and then the Fourth Crusade going to the right, dealing with heresies and Neoplatonism and Gnostic type stuff coming out of Constantinople, coming over to the west, and then coming back to bite. Isn't it strange that you have that going on with the Enlightenment, which many will say was sparked by the bad parts of the Renaissance, and then that went over into Russia with Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, etc. But here's the thing that ends up being lost amongst these polemics, which are often tied to the Jesuits being wicked and evil and making up all these unbiblical, unholy doctrines coming from both Protestants and Eastern Orthodox, but more in particular Russian Orthodox. And an example of that is Dostoevsky, and he's one of my favorite authors. I love Crime and Punishment, but he has a lot of propaganda against the Jesuits and black legend anti-Inquisition stuff, right? I'm not going to fault him for it. I'm still going to promote the things about Dostoevsky I like, but unfortunately, when it comes to being reciprocated, the Eastern side, when they polemicize in the very overt fashion against Rome, they tend to not mention any of the good things about it. Or they downplay it like it's just this minor thing that had no influence at all. And their heresies and their wickedness was just dominating throughout everywhere. And, you know, it just far superseded any of the good stuff. And I think that that is quite unfair. And so to demonstrate some of this unfairness and some of the further irony of it all is that the Jesuits, once expelled from Europe by Masonic plots and Protestant influence and a bunch of apostate Catholics, well, they got accepted into Russia by Catherine the Great, and Catherine the Great was succumbing to a lot of this Enlightenment stuff. If you read Barwell's memoirs, all the stuff that we go through in the memoir series, she's one of those people who's succumbing to it. But Barwell actually has a much more favorable viewpoint of her than people like Frederick the Great or even Joseph II. And so this is, again, the point recognizing when there's some good things about Russian Orthodoxy and the regime of Catherine the Great, despite a lot of that Enlightenment stuff and enabling of Diderot and Voltaire and all those guys. Well, what ends up happening is Tsar Paul I becomes very friendly with the Jesuits and tries to get them reinstituted in Russia, 
and works with the Pope to try to do that. And he's part of the Knights of Malta. And he is like a certified badass fighting against Freemasonry. So the Jesuits were very influential on Tsar Paul I of fighting against the Enlightenment and all these Masonic shenanigans. And he was assassinated. And then Alexander I takes over, and he's seen as more liberal, more tolerant to Masonry, and he kicks out the Jesuits eventually. He likes them at first, but then there's some confusion, and I think that that was a very grave error. And you'll notice a pattern. Those evil Jesuits who represent everything bad about Rome, well, whenever they're kicked out of an area during these times, before they got corrupted in the 20th century on the whole, well, 40 to 50 years later, you have all these crazy... SJW Masonic type revolutions taking over. So, pattern. Kicking out the Jesuits of your country, 40, 50 years later, you succumb to Masonic machinations that the Jesuits were vehemently fighting against, and that in their own writings of the Masons and Theosophists and everybody um, that is spawning the Enlightenment, their worst enemy is the Jesuits and the Counter Reformation regime. So, why are you siding? with your enemies and their propaganda when you're attacking Rome. Again, that's another huge red flag moment that people should think about when they succumb to all this. And the other irony is the Jesuits had a huge influence on the theology in the Kiev Academy, and this actually really helped innovate and update and progress Russian Orthodox theology. So they should actually thank the Jesuits for giving them a better theological system in school that created a lot of long-lasting effects. But when they exalt their theology over the Roman Catholic side and say, oh, we're so much more theologically amazing and sound, isn't it interesting that a lot of that is due to the Jesuits helping things out at the Kiev Academy? And this is all stuff that we'll get into in later parts. And if you recall, previously we mentioned how there was a Kiev cardinal that declared the Council of Florence and its reunion in Hagia Sophia in a very overt uh, fashion, isn't it a little providential that it's the Kiev Academy later on that helps give the Russian Orthodox the real Renaissance versus the fake Masonic Enlightenment one that it succumbs to eventually? And woe to the Tsars, unfortunately, and nobody in the Roman Catholic side is going to say, ha-ha, look what happened to the czars, and that's a result of bad theology of Russian Orthodoxy. No, it's a very lamentable thing, and nobody on the Catholic side, as far as I've seen, has ever been disrespectful to the czars and fighting against the Bolsheviks. It's always seen as a lamentable tragedy and a horrible, awful thing with the downfall of Nicholas II. But you oftentimes don't see that sympathy reciprocated upon people like Louis XVI or any of the Catholic monarchs that fell to all of those Masonic revolutions. Because what gets blamed? The occult renaissance of Rome. And then, of course, during this major schism or split between the Protestants and the Catholics, well, the Catholic side is able to call a council and have Trent deal with everything that's going on and then move forward in the strength of the Counter-Reformation and the Jesuits. Whereas later on you have a big schism in the East that's a little bit lesser known, but nonetheless significant, and it culminates in an ominous year in 1666, and they're unable to call a council and deal with it in an effective way as 
the Catholic side did with the Reformation and Trent. And then if you look at the demographics of the Catholic Church's evangelization throughout the world, especially with the Jesuits, it goes into all of these places that are third world territories and does a lot of good despite some abuses, whereas the Eastern Orthodox seems to be a little bit stagnant. Now, it's understandable because they're under Turkish rule and then later on communist rule. And again, that's understood. But is that kind of the problem? And that Orthodox evangelization outside of those areas tends to be more in Protestant or Catholic territories like, you know, Canada, America, and Australia. So doing what Christ commands and making disciples of all nations, there seems to be a discrepancy there. And this isn't something to gloat or exalt. It's just the reality of the situation. Neither side can get very smug about these things. And then the last things we mentioned are issues with Vatican I and Vatican II. So Vatican I, I find that there is a complete lack of understanding as to why papal infallibility is now being appealed to as a dogma, even though if a lot of these things were already kind of understood and accepted, generally speaking, on the Western Front. Well, it doesn't seem to be very well understood or appreciated that there are Masonic revolutions running around destroying Europe, doing all kinds of crazy stuff, which eventually lead to the Bolshevik Revolution, you know, some decades later. And the papacy is trying to deal with all of this. And in trying to get papal infallibility dogmatized, there's also efforts by those evil ultramontane Jesuits who also want to dogmatize the syllabus of errors along with papal infallibility. And this is what the WASP Masonic establishment was freaking out over. The New York Times was freaking out over it. We're going to go through all of this stuff later on and get to all the sourcing for it. But isn't it interesting that if the papacy had been able to declare modernism as defined by the syllabus of errors as a dogma and people who violated it were heretics... Well, I would say that Vatican II shenanigans never would have happened, and perhaps it might have been able to prevent the Bolshevik Revolution and the World Wars if these were dogmas of the Church and all the Catholic nations had to abide to the syllabus of errors. Just read through it, and it's everything that the Eastern Orthodox hates about Western secular atheism is being called out by the syllabus of errors. So with that being attempted to be pushed through by the Jesuits or the ultramontane despotic ones, is it not understandable? That would be a great benefit for the Eastern Orthodox side and general Christianity if that had become a dogma. But unfortunately, a Masonic war broke out, interrupted the Vatican Council, and as far as I understand, it was kind of hit or miss. But to act like... Declaring papal infallibility was this direct insult to everybody in the Eastern churches and how dare they and whatever, without understanding all that stuff I previously mentioned, I think is incredibly uncharitable. And if they want sympathy, which is had for being under Turkish rule or under communist rule and not being able to move as effectively as they would like, all the Catholics understand that and they sympathize. But when that sympathy is not given back, when all these Masonic revolutions are trying to destroy everything and trying to go and, you know, threaten to kill popes and all that stuff, oh, these papal innovations, how dare they? What awful satanic beasts of Rome, right? I mean, come on, seriously. Get over yourself. And so that leads up to discussions about Fatima and then Vatican II. 
and all these things that go with that. And from what I understand, it's a giant mess and it doesn't deserve these overly broad polemics that just sweep everything into a broad category. And the Catholic side shouldn't do that either when they examine things and issues in the East. And there's a lot more I could say about it, but we're going to leave that for the later episodes. And that's where we'll wrap up. And I'll just reiterate the main points. Measuring the same standards of judgment is important. It's what Christ commands. And I personally have a lot of respect for Eastern Orthodox, especially when they don't do these sorts of polemics and get all emotional about it and act like the Fourth Crusade was personally ordered by the Pope and act like the Fourth Crusade killed their own grandmother. So if you don't do that from the Eastern side, I have a lot of respect for you. And I think there's a lot more things in common than not. And I think the only way you get through all of these forces that attack both the East and West in the same ways, in the same manners, is to understand each side's issues and that perhaps some of the choices that were made that maybe weren't so good, there's at least understandable reasons why they made those choices. And you don't have to impart some sort of malicious evil intent on your brother in order to explain these things. And this is just the type of stuff that I've researched and the questions that I've asked, and I answer them in my own way. You might answer them differently. But nonetheless, hopefully, this synopsis and then other parts of the series for people who have access to it will be able to make more informed choices on if they are deliberating between the East and the West, you know, what is going to be more useful for you to make the best choice for yourself and for your own conscience and what you think is true. And you know where I stand, but I'll respect people greatly who choose the Eastern Orthodox Church as long as they're not engaging in all these polemics and exaggerations and bad behavior that relate to everything we just outlined. To gain access to the second hour, head to www.rockstaresoterica.com and become a member to gain all access to all content at all times. Or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, head to schism206.podbean.com.